I know that uh, uh, identity is a spectrum and that w- and that you are a man of parts, but but how do you identify? Are you an, an academic, uh, a, a practitioner, some sort of non-binary blend of those two? I guess I do have a sort of hybrid professional identity. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 755, Writing Like Shakespeare. Richard O'Brien is a lecturer in creative writing at Northumbria University and not, as his Twitter handle, at NotRockyHorror, helpfully informs us, the same Richard O'Brien who created that seminal work. But in addition to being an academic, this Richard O'Brien does write musicals and modern verse plays in a Shakespearean vein. And as a fellow creative in that area, I was hugely excited to talk about what that means. My PhD was uh, in Shakespeare studies, but it had some creative elements in it. Uh, I started trying to write modern verse plays. Um, and before that, I'd been I'd been a poet for quite a while and uh, had started getting into writing scripts as well. And um, so I've taught in creative writing departments and uh, early modern departments, but I've now landed a, a, a permanent job in a creative writing department. So that's what I spend most of my time doing, but I always kind of want to dip my finger back into the early modern waters, I guess. And if I'm understanding it correctly, you're not only uh, uh, writing in verse, but investigating what that means to write in verse. Is it is it fair that you feel, are you writing like Shakespeare or are you writing like Christopher Fry? Uh, well, um, I've got some some thoughts on on what it involves to write like both. Um, I mean, I think Fry was trying to write like Shakespeare in lots of ways. Um, he's an interesting figure, really, in that he's uh, a lot of the reasons that people kind of attacked Christopher Fry's verse plays after they were for a short period very popular. Uh, those reasons sound a lot like what people sometimes say about Shakespeare. So the plays are extremely verbose. The humor is, you know, it relies on sort of multi layered wordplay. Um, Fry is not hugely interested in in character, which which does count against him. And he's also not that interested in meter. And I, I, one of the things I suppose that I kind of discovered while trying to write plays in verse, or, or one of the things I wanted to test out by doing it, is what having to write in in such a structured form does to things like character and and sort of natural dialogue and you know the ways in which it can sort of heighten the the gravitas of um, of an expression, or I guess probably deep in the gravitas makes more sense. Um, but I think I, I saw um, Gary Taylor speak a few years ago. He'd been trying to rewrite parts of Cardinio, I think, uh, you know, the, the kind of surviving um, acts of Cardinio and sort of elaborating around them, trying to write like Shakespeare, but then at other parts, trying to write like Fletcher. And I remember him saying he thought he, he did a surprisingly good Fletcher impression, but no one was going to care. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and I remember, and I can't remember where I saw this or read this, but somebody once said, ah, oh, I, I, they disliked the, the fascism of verse, <laughs> the fascism of meter. Um, I don't find it that way. I find limits, limits to be paradoxically freeing. 
you know, w- once you can stay within the lanes of a of of metered verse, you you it focuses your writing, and you're able to say some things that are quite profound. And at the same time, it's giving you a form that you can then shatter at will when a character or you as the author wants to do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the I can see how people end up associating a kind of aesthetic conservatism with with a political kind you know there has been a lot of conservative art written in conservative forms but I don't think it's just that or always that and I think one of the reasons that kind of uh that that Shakespeare is considered to be such a good writer of dramatic verse is that he is not afraid to break and vary that form I mean he also doesn't go too far with it I remember reading a very dense book by uh, a very scholarly uh Russian prosodist who uh basically crunched the numbers about Shakespeare and a lot of his contemporaries in terms of how the verse was working and kind of came to the conclusion that Shakespeare was not the most conservative writer and always observing every beat, not the most uh, wild and freewheeling writer. Like that would be someone like, uh, like Webster. Uh, Shakespeare kind of sat in the middle of those extremes. And sometimes uh, it was, you know, sometimes there's more variation and kind of jagged edges and sometimes there isn't. You talked about the gravitas, and I find one thing that appeals to me about writing in this faux Shakespearean style that we've done for the last couple of plays, uh, Long Lost Shakes and Hamlet's Big Adventure, is that it, is that it, it, it lends that gravity, and you're sort of co-opting um, the what the the cultural cachet of being slightly Shakespearean, um, but at the same time, it's a great way to render jokes. Again, because jokes frequently have a structure to them that and a rhythm to them where if if it's a beat off, it doesn't work. And you'll forgive me for using the phrase beat off. Um, but <laughs> you know, so there's a precision to a joke and to verse that lends itself to comedy, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time outside of the theatrical context writing poetry and teaching poetry. And I think, yeah, there's a, a lot of similarities with comedy in terms of the precision of language and the organization and how important that is. I mean, the, the first thing that sprang to mind when you described that that idea of verse lending itself to humor um, because of those expectations, you might have seen this British uh, comedy series called Inside Number Nine. It's an anthology series by some of the writers of uh, The League of Gentlemen. Uh, I've only seen the one episode, which is called Hotel Zanzibar, and it is a Shakespeare pastiche. So it's written as... Um, it's, it's sort of a pastiche of Macbeth. It's got elements of other plays as well. It, everyone is speaking in verse. Uh, there's a sort of puck-like hotel porter who talks to us, or he's, I think he's a sort of, uh, the, the guy who does the lift, or would you call it like a bellhop? Uh, but he is the, um, he, uh, you know, he is kind of communicating to us in, in the audience. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's a really funny half hour of television, but a lot of that humor comes from, the the way expectations are set up around what's going to rhyme and what's going to land at what point and all and all that stuff. Well, and I know that sometimes, and this is uh, horrible for me to confess, but I know that some of the most frustrating characters in Shakespeare are the the fools who wax on at great length, um, displaying their linguistic. Um, capabilities and their the the kinds of literary references and linguistic wordplay that is just climbing up its own bottom you know when we're trying to get back to the story he's got clowns going on making latin puns and that becomes maddening and i can see 
I I I can see why this is a this is a pool in <laughs> a pool in which writers can easily get in over their heads because they start to noodle around. I mean, for me, the verse is only as good as it's it's in the service of a dramatic story. Or I mean, it could be comedic story as well. It can, although, I mean, so something that I kind of started to think about when I was looking into the history of verse drama, and that, that was the, the, the main thrust of the PhD was sort of what happens between then and now uh, in terms of you know, Shakespeare, the theater of Shakespeare that time being almost defined by dramatic verse as the kind of mainstay of what plays are. That's not what plays are like today. So right. what, what happens? And uh, one thing is I think that people stop writing comedies in verse. I mean, there's some comic, you know, comic stuff in musical theater, which is a structured form and, and probably an opera, which I don't know a lot about. But yeah, you, you stop getting really main, you know, main theater, main stage London national theaters producing comedies in verse uh, basically until someone like Christopher Fry kind of breaks through again. A lot of the writers I read um, in the 19th century, um, mostly these are kind of romantic poets who are trying their hand at theater. A lot of the criticism about them says that they just forget the need for action. They just go into soliloquy or it's entirely about the imagination, the kind of exploration of uh, tortured thoughts. And there's a lot of plays like that. There's a play uh, by Joanna Bailey called uh, De Montfort, which again is kind of a Macbeth story about someone getting too deep in blood. Um, that one's actually pretty good. But a lot of the plays by people like, you know, Wordsworth, uh, Shelley, the issues with them tend to be about uh, about plot kind of going by the wayside in favor of these internal or, you know, external monologues. Hi, this is Rich Fulcher, Bob Fossil from The Mighty Boosh on BBC America, and you're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? We are still the remote Shakespeare company for at least six more months, but we're beginning to have some small, cautiously optimistic conversations about returning to venues sooner than that, if conditions and equity rules permit. We'll keep you posted on Facebook and Twitter as soon as we know anything more. Now back to my conversation with poet, lyricist, playwright, and lecturer, Richard O'Brien. You mentioned musical theater, and I realized, I don't know, a couple of years ago, that it's one of the reasons I enjoy writing in verse, because I also write musicals. And my mm. partner, I had an old, I had a partner that we I worked with for many years, and we would write musicals, and they're enormous fun. And of course, audiences love them if they're good. And, um, but they're hard to get on. <laughs> they're expensive to put on. And uh, 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 what I one aspect of writing in verse like this is that for me, it's like many of the pleasures of both writing a musical and watching one is this facility with language. I mean, even Hamilton, even without the music, would be, I think, enormously fascinating and interesting and intriguing because just the patter and the linguistic. Uh, you know, uh, pyrotechnics of the characters speaking is phenomenal. I love that stuff. Yeah, it's absolutely constructed around rhythm and and those kind of expectations that that sets up with an audience. I mean, it's uh, it does rely it does rely on music in a way that you know great songwriters uh, who who are also great lyricists are still 
drawing on on music, you know, that's why it's kind of hard to compare sort of Dylan Keats or something. Um, as I remember someone telling me when I was a, a very young poet who probably was only listening to music and not reading very much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, audiences are still drawn to it. I mean, I write musical theatre as well. I mean, a, a London musical theatre workshop, which is based on, um, I think it's called BMI in, in New York, where I think you are. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of talent out there uh, in in kind of emerging artists, but it, it's so expensive to get anything made. And I was in the BMI Musical Theater Workshop too in the '80s, and uh, in, <laughs> in in New York, and um, it yeah. and I was fascinated by it. It presupposes that that the art of writing a musical can be taught, um, which I'm I'm still not 100% sure I'm convinced of because I didn't start really learning to write musicals until I, until I was actually producing them myself. And I was lucky. I was lucky to be in a position where I could write something and then get it up and then see it because, I don't know, for me, it's always it's all about how does it play with an audience? How does it work with an audience? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've become extremely wary of directing my own work because in retrospect, when I did it, it wasn't that good. <laughs> but there is something to be said for being in the rehearsal room as a writer and, and the kind of cuts and edits you can make from that. I mean, I suppose this, to go back to, to Shakespeare a little bit, this uh, we don't really know how much of the text that we have a kind of official... We don't know how much they relate to a sort of first night text or a, a text from the middle of the run after the cuts have been made that needed to be cut and all of that. I, you know, there are people who know a lot more than I do about those printing and production processes. But I think essentially we might not have the versions that play best with audiences as the versions that exist in print. Right. And some of those ex versions that exist in print might be, in fact, all the versions, all the lines put together. Let's put them all in. Remember, don't remember we cut this when we took it on tour. Nah, stick it in. It'll be good. It'll still be good. Which is why we don't know how old or heavy Hamlet is. The character is as heavy and as old as the actor playing him, I think. Tell me more about the the program that you were in uh, at the Shakespeare Institute with uh, with Ronan Hatfield because it sounds like it sounds like exactly the kind of program I would love to take if I were young and take doing a PhD. Yeah, well, you should come and give some sort of guest talk, and you should soak up the atmosphere that way. Um, there's a. Uh... It was called Shakespeare and Creativity, uh, still running, um, obviously, and uh, but it was founded in 2013-14 um, by um, Ewan Fernie and Abigail Rokerson. Abigail um, wrote a great book called uh, Shakespearean Verse Speaking, which I actually drew on quite a lot in the PhD. It's a really great, accessible kind of summary of the debates about, about that subject. But um, she, she, she comes from a theatre background. She was a... a, a she was an actress uh, as a child and a teenager and has continued to work in, in theatre as well, but has moved into uh, academia around uh, Shakespeare. And uh, and so she was coming from that theatrical production background and trying to inject that into a, a Shakespeare course. And then uh, Ewan um, had become really interested in sort of creative criticism and how much creative writing you can kind of do within literary criticism or, or really, you know, what it can actually add to be bringing those kind of skills and approaches into a critical space and the the course was kind of designed to explore all of that alongside the more trad stuff so we'd have some sessions that were really about kind of reading and discussing the plays in, in close detail as ever but a lot of it was geared towards producing new work so we we did some collaborative stuff in in rsc spaces uh in terms of um putting together uh, a show for a sort of uh daytime audience who might be wandering through the space it was a sort of pop-up show um 
and also those we were encouraged to write sort of creative criticism ourselves in, in response to the text. So a lot of the work that came out from the students was was creative. Um, and I, you may or may not know, I ended up teaching the course about seven years later or six years later uh, when Ewan was on sabbatical. So I had to go back in 2019 and, and, and see it from the other side. The inmates are truly running the asylum. <laughs> And have you been able to see your the, the 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 your creative work that you're writing? Have you been able to see it produced? Yeah, I mean, I've had um, I have had some theatre professionally produced. I had a, a children's show uh, produced in London in in 2016, I think. Um, but the productions that were put, were put on during my um, PhD, they were sort of pro am, I guess. Um, the uh, director who who directed my first play, Free for All, Beck Martin, is now at the um, the Arcola Theatre in London uh, and and is a, a fantastic um, sort of producer and director over there. Uh, but she put together a cast, um, some of whom were were local professional actors who auditioned, some of whom were from uh, the institute's own pretty talented kind of uh, amateur pool uh, student student amateur pool. And um, we took that show up to we did it in Stratford. Uh, we took it to the Edinburgh Fringe, which was kind of a grueling experience trying to get people uh, to take a flyer to come and see a new verse play when there's 2,000 other shows they could be going to, and most of them are probably funny. Um, and uh, and then we did a sort of little tour of the Midlands here, and, and we did audience feedback forms and tried to get a sense of what people actually thought of hearing verse in production uh, in a modern context. It's very hard not to, um, not to preempt their responses with a survey like that, because as soon as you say what do you think of the verse? You're having a different conversation. Um, right. But it, it was good for kind of testing out some of these hypotheses with audiences. Well, and did you find, did you discover things from an audience response that didn't occur to you in the classroom as you're studying it? Yeah. I mean, of course, the first thing that comes into my mind is is negative uh, because that's what happens when you read your own reviews. Um, but um, someone pointed out uh, there was a character who was speaking in very structured rhyme, um, it, not in pentameter, but in those kind of four or three beat rhyming lines. I think there were four beat, like the witches have, or like Puck mm. sometimes has, uh, you know, talking directly to the audience. And that tends to be much more structured, much heavier rhymes. Uh, someone quoted a couplet from that and said it sounded like a dodgy lyric by the Liberties. <laughs> so I've never forgotten that. Um, something I remember thinking myself was important that didn't come across to those first audiences was stuff about, um, line breaks and uh, not, yes, line breaks and also split lines. So I think you were talking about that when we were talking about comedy, the way that people can sort of steal lines away from each other, steal rhymes, sort of compete for the space of this very, you know, very structured line. Audiences didn't really pick up on anything about that in terms of what they wrote in the questionnaires. And I really thought that might be something they were interested to, that sort of tension and competition. But that just made me think, actually, in a way, maybe it needs to be heightened more. I mean, you could get into a cycle of just, doing stuff, finding that audiences don't like it, and then talking about it on podcasts for years. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that, um, you know, because it's such a structured form, perhaps that the acting also needs to be heightened to a degree to get across that element of, of play and competition as well. Well, and sometimes you don't want the audience to get that stuff. If they're thinking about that, they're, that means they're not thinking about the characters or the story, you know? You don't want them dissecting right. your work. You want them to enjoy your work, don't you? Right. And I think that's probably that's probably the impulse of someone who actually works in theatre speaking Austin. And that's probably why uh, you're, you're a dramatist uh, more of the time. And I'm a poet more of the time. But I think synthesising those things is, is really the, um, the holy grail. 
That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your favorite verse drama via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and I hope you'll check out my new website, theshakespeareans.com. There you can find information on how I can help you with monologues, presentations, or writing projects you're working on. Check out theshakespeareans.com and my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Austin Titchener. Thanks, as always, to For Better and Diverse, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, and Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Linda Shamlian. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Rich Fulcher from the Mighty Boosh, Drunk History, and a bit of a poet in his own right. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, get vaccinated, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 755 2265ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Uh, whenever you're trying to write about verse drama in shorthand, you have to be very careful not to abbreviate it VD, because if you find that in your notes, you're going to be surprised for a minute. This podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.